The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Well, I do bring you greetings from uh, Hope Church up in Madison, and it's, uh, it's great to be with you guys. I, uh, I told Jonathan that uh, when he invited me to come, my biggest concern was um, I'm a middle-aged white guy and not very cool, and uh, I'm not sure I was quite cool enough to come and preach here, um, but uh, I don't own skinny jeans or a V-neck t-shirt. Um, and then he reminded me that Ed Kaler pastors here, so... Uh, <laughs> That, that was good until the vision of Ed in skinny jeans and a V-neck t-shirt haunted me for the next two weeks. Um, but uh, but I'm, I'm glad to be here, and uh, I, I'm looking forward to, uh, to opening up God's Word with you um, this morning and to, and to see what God has for us. Let me pray, and then, uh, and then we'll take a look at this text. God, I thank you that you are a God who comes and condescends to communicate with us. Uh, Lord, though you are the creator God high above the heavens, though you are perfectly holy, Lord, you come to us that we might know what you demand and what you've done. And Lord, I confess this morning my inability to do anything of spiritual significance, but Lord, I'm grateful to you that through your word and through your spirit, uh, Lord, you not only have the power, but the willingness to do everything that is necessary. And so, Lord, I pray that you would use uh, this word that has been read and now explained to do your work in us. Lord, we, uh, we need you. Uh, Lord, we need to understand and we need to believe. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do that work in and through this time. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, we tend to think of theology as a very academic kind of pursuit. It's that kind of thing that is performed by uh, theologians. And theologians are kind of like scientists, right? I live in Huntsville, the world of rocket science. And uh, theologians are kind of like scientists. You know that they exist, but you've never actually met one. You don't actually know what they do. Uh, Theology is kind of that thing that is done in uh, big books that are held in ivory towers that are accessed through these hallowed halls, right? And uh, those books contain these $10 words, Uh, These words like anthropomorphism or hypostatic union or immutability or hermeneutics. And yes, those are all theological words uh, that you have to learn if you study theology. And we think that theology is usually something that is beyond our our reach if we're just normal folks. It might be for theologians, it might be for pastors, but just the regular folks, it's just not for us. On the other side, I think much of evangelicalism and even conservative churches kind of approach Christianity a little different. We tend to want to kind of have a Christianity that tells us the how-tos. We want to make sure that we get things in line. And to be honest, we want to go and really find the principles or discover the steps, get the secrets 
to really making our life what we want it to be. We're obsessed with being happier people, having good families, successful careers, even being good Christian people and finding the Christian way to do certain things. We're really kind of obsessed on one side from these how-tos and and what it looks like. And if we walk out of a sermon on Sunday morning and we don't know what to do, we kind of usually feel like we missed something. When I open up the book of, uh, of Romans, I don't think Paul will allow this fissure to exist. I, I don't think that theology is something that is far away and, and disconnected from our life and, and Life is something over here that we kind of do and discover. I actually think what Paul wants us to see as he walks through this beautiful tome of Romans is to see this theology that lives right beside us. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to take you on a little bit of a journey. What I've called this this sermon is from theology to life and back again, because here in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, he's going to tell us some theology, and we need to know this. He's going to kind of send us backwards into a review of what he's already said, and so it's going to take us a few minutes to develop these ideas, but he doesn't want us to just leave them there. Because these ideas are going to take us and push us forward because what we know and who we are and and what we have become and the status that we have now has some results and some benefits that he wants you to live in and even seep into the moments where things are the hardest. And so he starts this chapter in chapter 5 by saying, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, this is the the theology, this is the prerequisite, this is what we have to know. What is this justification? What does this mean? Well, he's actually spent the last four chapters helping us to understand this. In some ways, uh, I would say that the big question in the book of Romans is how can unrighteous, unholy, rebellious sinners come into the presence of an all-holy God? It's, it's really the big question of Romans. I would say in one way, it's the big question of life or even the big question of Christianity. How, how does that fit together? That's actually kind of approaching the question from a very human standpoint. If you want to approach it from God's standpoint, is how does God communicate and how does God commune with sinners and still remain righteous, still remain just. The kind of premise of that is laid out in the very first few verses of the book of Romans. The verse that probably many of us memorized as kids is Romans chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. An important verse, but I actually think the verse that follows it's actually more important. He says, For in it, in this gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This was the verse that captured the understanding of the great reformer Martin Luther. 
It was the verse that he, he, he had to work out. What does this mean? The righteousness of God that is given, that is placed, that is put on sinners. And how is this righteousness attained? Well, Paul begins his argument by pointing out the fact that we all are unrighteous. I don't know if you know that or not, but the first two chapters of the book of Romans are about how bad we are. In fact, I call Romans 18 through the end of chapter 1 our amen chapter, because in most conservative evangelical churches, this is the, the uh, pulpit-pounding passage of Scripture, right? We, we get to 18, for the wrath of God has been revealed against all unrighteousness of men, and we all stand up and we all go, Amen. Go get them, God, those wicked pagan sinners. Right? And we stand there and it becomes the amen chorus of we're in here and we're the good church folk and those people out there are the people that hate God. Those are the people that rebel against Him. Those are the people that that do everything against what He said should be done. Those people, God, go get those people. The problem with that view is we read chapter 1, but we don't read chapter 2 and chapter 3. Because chapter 2 and chapter 3 take our pride, take our self-righteousness, and decimate it. Chapter 2 and chapter 3 are an indictment, and I would say a harder and a longer indictment of self-righteous individuals, good church folk, than even chapter 1. Because those that are self-righteous see no need, no, you know, nothing, God doesn't need to give them anything. They can attain it all on their own. And the devastation of chapters 2 and chapters 3 is for us to look at and to see that our access to God's Word, our access to what He has said and what He demands only serves to devastate us. Because even in our attempts to follow it, we don't follow it all the way down. I mean, some of us are really good at following the rules. Any of you that have raised kids, you see the differences in kids, right? Some kids are rebellious kids, like you're always trying to hold them in. Those are like the chapter one kids. Some kids are the the people pleaser kids, right? They want to follow, they want to do, they want want the, the acceptance of their parents, and so they do everything to appease and to please their parents. Those are the self-righteous people of chapter 2 and 3. The problem, though, is they're all lost. Whether they're lost in their rebellion openly or they're lost in their rebellion self-righteously. And the problem is how will anybody be saved? Well, the bad news of chapters 1 and 2 and 3 is met with the good news of the middle of chapter 3. 
where this righteousness of God is placed on individuals, not because they follow the law, not because they do what God has said, but simply because God places it on them. Look at verse 21 of chapter 3. He says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. He says this righteousness is given, is granted. If you want to use a big theological term, is imputed into people. It's not a righteousness that comes from the inside out. It's a righteousness that comes from the outside in. What Luther called it was an alien righteousness. Not that it came down in in UFOs, but it was an alien body, a foreign body to us. It was not a righteousness that we had in ourselves. And it was opposed to even the Catholic idea that righteousness would be placed into an individual, it would be seeded into them, and they would work to water it and, and flourish it, and ultimately it would grow up into a righteousness. This imputed righteousness would be one that would be placed on them. And it would be an objective uh, reality where this justification would be given and they would be called not guilty. The big question, well, the, the, the beautiful statement, one of my favorite statements in the book of Romans is, is, verse, 20, is verse 26 of chapter 3. This righteousness doesn't violate God's holiness. It says it shows God's righteousness at the present time so that he might be both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Man, this this is beautiful theology. God doesn't look at sin and go, oh, well, it's no big deal. That would mean he is unjust. But you look at sinners with the inability to to gain that righteousness on their own so that God becomes the justifier. This is quite incredible and the question becomes, how does this happen? How how do we gain this? How does it come to us? And his whole argument in chapter 4 is this comes to us just like righteousness came to our father Abraham by faith. It's not that you go out and you do things and become righteous. He says, this comes to you just like it came to him, where it says he believed God, he trusted God, and it was granted, it was given to him as righteousness. This faith is this believing, trusting, resting in not what I can accomplish, but what God has already accomplished in Christ. That he has done everything that is necessary for now me to be righteous before God. And I am given that, I am granted that by faith. You say that's a a bunch of theology, that's really heady stuff. Uh, What does that have to do with my life? Well, 
Paul wants to show you that there's at least three benefits here in chapter 5 of this justification. This isn't just justification. This isn't just theology. But he says, I I want you to show you how this steps into your life now. He says the first thing is you have been justified by faith. Now we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The first benefit of this justification, the first benefit of this new status is that you have peace with God. Now, this peace is not what we might think of. First, we we usually, when we think of peace, we think of a feeling, right? Or even if we think um, of peace in in a biblical sense, we might think of this peace as the peace uh, of God. Like, we come to a settled state. Like, we're, we're, you know, I was sitting last night on, the, on the, my back patio uh, and uh, listening to, the, to the, uh, the insects and the frogs and listening to a little bit of water, sitting there, and then just enjoying the moment being at peace which doesn't happen very much in a house with five kids, right? And that's what we usually think of as peace. But what he says here is, it's not that, but this is the peace with God. This is a relationship. This is a connection. This is a reconciliation with the God of the universe that you are no longer at war with Him. You see, the whole description at the beginning of the book of Romans is there's a war going on, and it's two ways. We as sinners shake our fist at God. We rebel against God. We want to throw off His demands, His constraints. And we really say what Adam and Eve said is we will be our own God. We will make our own decisions. What D.A. Carson calls... The, the ungodding of God. And so we're at war with God, but frankly, God's at war with us. Because that rebellion then has God in His justice, in His righteous justice, revealing His wrath against us. And what Paul says is this justification, this position this present position that you are in now brings you to peace with God. The war is over. The words that he's going to use at the end of this section, starting in verse 10, he says, For while you were enemies with with God, God reconciled by the death of His Son much more that we should be reconciled. We will be saved by His life. More than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. This works out in our Christian life in a bunch of different ways. One of the ways it works out is oftentimes we're trying to live our Christian life thinking that God is just a little bit upset with us. We think that we need to do the right things, be the right kind of person, and then God will be at peace with us. 
That's not what this says. This says, if you are justified, God is at peace with you. Don't we think about our Christian life a lot of times that way that if, you know, if I do my quiet time, if I, um, you know, serve people, if I love people, if I don't get mad today, then God's at peace with me. That's not what this says. God is at peace with you if you are justified. This is an objective reality. This isn't a subjective feeling. Now, this reality has come through the, the vehicle, you could say in a sense, of His Son. Because it says here, you have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I love the way Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 2 where he even personalizes it more when he says about Christ, for he himself is our peace. And this peace with God now allows us to be at peace with other people. One of the the realities of, of this settled position is now this War with God is over, so we no longer have to struggle to have this relationship solid. It is solid. It is at peace. And now that resulting peace affects those around us. It's just like any household. If my wife and I are at peace with one another, our household tends to be more peaceful, right? He says, because Jesus is our peace, he says in Ephesians 2, he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, abolishing the law of commands expressed in ordinances that we might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace. This reconciliation with others, whether that is racially, whether that is socioeconomically, whatever divides us, whatever pulls us apart, whatever makes us, us and them, He says, Christ has come in the gospel and because now you have peace with God, you can have peace with others. But he goes on. That's just one result of this justification. He says, not only is this justification us having peace with God, but verse 2, he says, through Him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. I want you to think about this for a second in, the, in terms of redemptive history, right? If you think about this in terms of redemptive history, access to God was always limited. You coming into the presence of God, if you were not male, if you were not of the tribe of Levi, if you were not a son of Aaron, you never came into the presence of God. Because the limits to access to the presence of God was that high priest that would come once a year into the Holy of Holies and he would come in there trembling to access God's presence.
But what Paul says here is this access to God, because we have been justified, has been opened up to every single individual who is justified. He says, we now stand in this sphere of grace. This is a a position that we have, that we occupy, where we can come into the presence of God, not because of us, but because of Christ and what He has done. I kind of think of it this way. If you are an advisor to a king or to a president, you have access to that leader. But to be honest, your access is limited by your qualifications, right? No king or president is calling me up to find out what I think about something. Okay? They don't care. And if for some weird reason the White House misdialed and got me and they wanted me to come access and I would be able to talk to that, they would quickly find out that I don't know what I'm talking about and my access would be cut off. The, the limits of access to, to someone in those kind of positions is based on your qualifications and your understanding. It's based on what you've actually done. But what Paul says here is our access to God has nothing to do with our qualifications, our status, our place, or what we have accomplished, but it is simply because we are justified. The difference in that illustration would be what would happen if a child of a king or president would want to come into their presence. That child has no qualifications. They come into his presence simply because of who they are. They have access simply because of the name that they carry. And that's what Paul is saying here. There is access to God because we are justified. I think so often in our Christian life, we're, we're, we're not sure if we have access to God especially when we feel far away from Him or we feel that we have sinned or we've done something. I don't have access to God. That's not what Paul says. He says your access to God is not based on what you have done or not done. He says your access to God is based on who you are now as a justified individual. These are current, stable realities unbreakable that you live in this privileged position accessible to God how would it change your prayer life if you knew that you had access to God some of us are uh, we go back to that secrets thing right well what are the secrets to prayer well what if the secret to prayer is just knowing that you are justified that you can come into the holy holy of holies As Hebrews says, that you boldly enter into the presence of grace. 
He says, that's your position. Third thing he says here is even more radical than those two, I think, in some ways. He says, not only do we have peace, not only do we have access, but he says we have hope. He says, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. He says, this justified status means that now we have hope. We could be described, or we could describe the people of chapters 1 and chapters uh, 2 and 3 as people without hope. But what he says here is we now have hope. Now you have to understand something. Hope in Scripture is not what we normally think of or the way we normally use the word hope. Hope in, script, in, in our vernacular is usually used for more of a wish, right? Well, I, I really hope that my kids get me a good Father's Day present, right? Or, you know, we are in the Southeast, so we really hope that our team wins a national championship this year, right? We're not happy with just a winning record. We're not happy with just a a good season. We want a national championship. But expressing in that way is just a wish. We, We hope that this happens. Biblical hope is much different. Biblical hope is not a wish or a desire, but it's a settled assurance of the outcome. I think of it this way. Some of you, and I don't know why you do this, this is the weirdest thing to me ever, go back and watch old Bama games. Okay? Some of you, I can guarantee, at least one of you in here has watched the national championship game again. Okay? And they replay it so we can see it, right? Biblical hope is like watching that again. Okay? You're you're watching the game and there might be some angst because you see certain things happen and and you, you kind of see how the game is developing. But you've already seen it before. You already know what's going to happen. You know that third down play in overtime? You know that's coming, right? It's not like the, the, the showing it again, something's going to change. This is it. That's biblical hope. The outcome is fixed. No, nothing is going to be different. We read the end of the book. We know what happens. We, we understand the gospel is the, the reality that this justified status has come and redemption has come not only to us, but it will ultimately come to all things. And because of that, we look at our justified status and we say, I have hope of the glory of God. What's interesting 
is if you put this in the context of the book of Romans, part of the reason God is judging people is they are against the glory of God. They don't give Him glory. But now it's actually our hope. We, we look at a day where God will be glorified in all things. And this reality, this, this truth is one that we look forward to with anticipation. When I was a kid, I never understood. My parents would say, even so, come Lord Jesus, right? I'm a kid. Like, I'm living my life going, man, I got all these things I want to do. <laughs> like, this is, all this stuff is in front of, don't, Jesus, just hold on. Like, I got stuff going on, right? The longer I live my life, the longer I look at this world, I understand that prayer. This is the hope of glory. This is not how things will be. What's crazy about this hope is it's a hope that seeps backwards. He says, And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. And you're like, I I was with you all the way up to that verse. (laughs) Like, everything was great. And then we get to to verse 3. We rejoice in the hope of our suffering. But this is a hope that seeps backwards. Because it isn't just this kind of like pie in the sky a hope that maybe someday things will become okay. It's actually a hope that will happen. And in this present moment, it comes back into view that this is God moving His redemptive plan forward. See, this world is awful. It's, it's sin-soaked. I, I don't want to soft-pedal that at all because I think so many times as, as Christians, what we do is we look at a verse like this and we, we think about it one of two ways. We look at a verse like this and we become Pollyannas, right? Oh, everything's not that bad. There, there's, there, there's beauty in the world. No, this world is sin-soaked. The reality of, of the world is that things are not as they should be. And to ignore that is to ignore this reality. I spent the better part of the last week with my parents. And my mom for the last five years has suffered with frontal lobe dementia. Which, if you're not familiar with that, it's a a condition that's in some ways worse than Alzheimer's where for the last three years she hasn't said a word and for the last several years she hasn't expressed any emotion. And now her body is beginning to fail and she can't take a step or care for herself. And I look at this world and I say, this world is sin-soaked. There's no Pollyanna about this. And so many of our Christian 
answers just become, oh, well, yeah, it'll be okay. No. But then the other side of us, right? Some of us, usually those chapter two and three folks, right? We, we approach it a different way. We become masochistic about the pain. You know, we're, we're like those crazy CrossFit people, right? Oh, this hurts so good, right? Who are those people, right? Like, I don't get that. That's not the approach here either. This isn't kind of a, a self-flagellation of like, that, that we enjoy the pain. No, what Paul says here is the pain is put in the reality of this hope of glory. The, the pain is, is put into the context of not only our position with God, but what this is producing in us so that in the midst of the hurt and the pain and the sin, we still can find joy because we realize what it is producing. I love what the commentator F.F. Bruce says about this verse, and it just cuts through so much of our current Christian culture. He says, If this seems strange to us, Let us remind ourselves that in the New Testament, affliction is viewed as the normal Christian experience. Those are hard words to read. For for most of us, we work as hard as we can to get away from pain, to get away from difficulty, to make our life easy. That's part of the reason why in, in the, the opening, we're looking for all of those how-tos, right? But he goes on to say, but affliction and tribulation were not only regarded as inevitable features of the Christian law, they were looked upon as a token of true Christianity. He says, why? Because anything that we experience have done to us, we realize that that does not affect our position before God. The suffering, he says, verse 3, knowing that the suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. Nothing that we go through will change our position before God. Because we recognize our positional security, the difficulty of our present state, but we also recognize our ultimate destination. The problem is that we struggle to see it, right? The problem is a problem of Trusting in faith. We wrestle and we need reassurance that this is really a reality because in the midst of the struggle, in the midst of the difficulty, we, we need to know. Well, I love how he closes out this section as he says, you know what you need to know? 
You need to know that these are settled reality even in the midst of your pain. He says, well, one, I've given you the spirit for that. Verse 5, And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. One of the jobs of the Holy Spirit is, as he's going to call him later in chapter 8, the spirit of adoption through which we cry, Abba, Father. He says, you have been given the spirit so you would know that you are in this state. That no matter where you are, what, uh, what pain you suffer, or what, what sin and this world afflicts on you, you are his child and you cry out, Abba, Father. But to be honest, sometimes that, that is a little bit subjective. Right? Because we go through life sometimes and we're not sure we really feel it. Even in the midst of the pain, that's usually the hardest time for us to feel it, right? That things are, are, are pushing in on us and we're not sure that we really feel this love of God. Well, what does he say? Verse 6 through 11 is not the subjective reality of the Spirit, but the objective reality of the cross. When you have doubts, when you are not sure, when you look at life and everything is pressing in to you, how do I really know that I know that I know? You look at the cross. He says, For while you were still weak, and at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ didn't die for you because he looked at you and said, hey man, you're doing pretty good. I think I'm going to die for you. Hey, you're a righteous person. I'm going I'm to just kind of complete that righteousness for you. He says, while you were still weak, and at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He says, if you ever doubt the love of God, if you ever struggle with the status of being justified, don't look at your experience, look at the cross. Because in the cross, the love of God has been shed abroad to you in the moment of your greatest rebellion. He says, that's when I came for you. So what do we do with this? Well, one thing I want you to, to notice in this passage, 1 through 11, there is not one single command. It's not one. Go look for him. If you can find one, if you can take it back to the Greek, come tell me. But verses 1 through 11, there is no commands. He's simply telling you if you are justified, if you have faith in Christ, this is who you are and what you have. 
so many of us think that the Christian life is tiring. It's running. It's working. When I see a passage like this, what I begin to understand is Jesus' words to his disciples, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. We, we don't get that in the evangelical world. It took me so long in my Christian life. The Christian life is rest. God's, God's uh, work for us brings us to a place of rest. No, God, 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 you know, God got me started and I got to get these things done and I, I got to go through this list and, I, and then God will really love me. It's not Romans chapter 5, 1 through 11. No commands. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you have heard me speak all the way through this, and you're going, wait, wait, hold on a second. Hold on a second. This grace stuff is dangerous. Like, if you tell people this is their position, they're going to go crazy! Actually, it works in the reverse. When we understand our place and our privileged position, we come to a place of worshiping and glorifying God, not because we have to, but because we get to. There's no commands in this text because what's going to happen and what... what um, I told my people is when we get to 2028 20, and I get to Romans chapter 8, we'll show you how the Spirit works these things out. But you don't have the benefit of that. So just trust me. Your justified status and knowing that will work itself out. The out of this, I think, too, is an understanding of belief and faith. The struggle of the Christian life is a struggle of faith. Trusting in what God has already accomplished. It's the struggle of, I believe, help me in my unbelief. That, to me, is the key struggle of the Christian life. What else do I do with this? I seek to live my life out of that faith, not out of fear. I think so much of our Christian life, so much of Christian motivation is moved forward by fear. Like God is a fickle parent. You do the right things, they're happy with you. You do the wrong things, they're coming to get you. What I see in a text like this is that a justified status, a status of being 
at peace with God, a status of being adopted into his family, a status of having Christ put on us, is now a status of faith and not fear. See, we started with this idea that theology is connected to life. And don't let it sit in dusty books and hallowed halls. This justification, this reality, this, this settled truth that those who have by faith put their trust in what Christ has done in his life, death, and resurrection now have these things. Period. End of sentence. And they transform and change my perspective on the daily grind of life. I can look at my mom and I can mourn and I can wonder and I can even scream at God sometimes. I don't understand, God, why? But I can also know that there is hope. In the moment of my rebellion, when I know that I'm falling away and I'm not doing what God has called me to do, I come back. Not trying to ink my way back in to God's favor, but simply experiencing the grace because of being justified. And actually, in one way, it actually amplifies God's grace. I hope that you don't just allow theology to be something you know. But just like this passage, I hope that it takes you from theology to life and back again.